Welcome to the Azure Security Podcast, where we discuss topics relating to security, privacy, reliability, and compliance on the Microsoft Cloud Platform. Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome to episode number 12. We have the whole gang here this week. Uh, myself, Sarah, Gladys, and Mark. We also have a special guest, Ava Black, who is a program manager in the Confidential Computing Team. Uh, but before we get to Ava, uh, let's uh, let's see what's happened in the news in the last couple of weeks. Sarah, what have we got? Okay, so a couple of things from me this week. We have um, some IoT security updates. Now, um, as we know, it's that time of year where it's Ignite and we change the name of things. So I guess the first thing I need to say is that Azure Security Center for IoT is now called Azure Defender for IoT. And it's now publicly available. Basically, is a way of monitoring your IoT things um, without having to install agents, which, um, as you, you may know, if you're in the IoT space, one of the biggest difficulties with monitoring IoT things is that you often, traditionally, we would install agents. Um, and now Azure Defender for IoT um, has got a lot of agentless technology in, which is going to make it much easier, particularly for older IoT things. So go check it out. Um, other things in the IoT space, there's so many, but... It's also um, worth looking at the IoT security maturity model or the SSN, which we are doing with the Industrial Internet Consortium, also uh, just abbreviated to the IIC. What this IoT uh, security maturity model um, will give you a consistent approach to approaching IoT security. And, and we know we've got a lot of security frameworks out there, but um, of course, in uh, IoT land, um, it's a little bit newer and less developed. So it's great to be getting some more frameworks in there. There's a ton of other things going on. Um, I'm going to, uh, the other one I'm going to point out from some of the updates is we're also now having IoT edge security with enclaves which means we can have trusted applications running in an IoT environment, which is a big, big thing that don't want to go into it now. And I'm going to leave it there, but go check out all the IoT security updates. Uh, we'll put the link in the show notes. So there's a few more going on. So do go read the rest of them. The next one is Logic Apps. So Logic Apps is one of my faves. It's the way that we do automation within the whole of Azure. Um, it's used uh, in many, many products, including my baby, Azure Sentinel. Logic Apps now um, can run in a containerized runtime, uh, which means it can run in Azure App Service, Kubernetes, Docker, and, and other clouds as well. Um, it also can now work with private endpoints. So if you're using private endpoints for some of your past services in Azure, we can now get Logic Apps to talk to it using the private endpoint, not the public one. Um, and we're also, uh, again, I'm picking and choosing some of the updates here, but um, we can also integrate now with GitHub Actions, which means if you're a developer, uh, there's better consistency there as well. Again, go check out the show notes because there's actually a few other things going on in Logic Apps land, but they're a couple of my favorites. <laughs> And the last thing I wanted to mention, because it is uh, pretty trendy, I think, at the moment, is Azure Arc. So Azure Arc-enabled servers have now gone GA. 
So it means that you can manage uh, Windows and Linux servers from one place, um, and that's whether they're on-premise or the cloud. So, uh, yep, um, it also means that if you're using Azure Arc, um, you can, uh, to manage your uh, machines, you can also use some of the native Azure services like Monitor, um, what is now Azure Defender, etc., Azure Policy, um, to be able to get the consistency with some of the other great tools that we have in Azure. So I'm going to leave it there for my news and throw it over to you, Michael. I think it's great seeing Logic Apps get uh, private endpoint support. Uh, as you know, I've been working a lot with uh, healthcare customers over the last, uh, actually, most of this year, actually. And just about all of them are looking at uh, private link, private endpoint solutions to protect healthcare information in the cloud, because essentially it becomes almost an extension of their of their on-prem network, uh, which, is, which is just fantastic. But we're seeing more and more products uh, come on stream with private link, private endpoint support, which is, uh, which is great to see. Uh, I had a few things that, sort of stuck out to me over the last few weeks. I have this this goal for the rest of this year to do all the 900 exams uh, at Microsoft. And one of those is the AI 900, which is basically the, the basics of artificial intelligence and machine learning, uh, understanding a lot of tooling that we have in this space. And I just noticed actually today that Azure ML now has support for private link in preview. Uh, it's only in East US and US West too. Uh, but again, it's in private preview. So we often will you know restrict the number of of, um, geographies that are have that service available. The other uh, areas that sort of took my fancy this uh, last last couple of weeks are all to do with uh, VMs. Uh, one of the big ones is that we now have better support in the backup area for VMs. Um, so, for example, you can back up to 32 disks. That is now generally available. Uh, there's also the ability for virtual machines to have a selected backup and restore. Uh, so rather than backing up absolutely everything, you may decide I only want to back up uh, that specific you know, that specific volume, for example, as opposed to absolutely everything. We also have some new maintenance control features, uh, especially around updating and configuration management for VMs. Um, and as Sarah mentioned, I will uh, cover those um, in the show notes. So those are the main things that took my interest this week. Uh, great to see private link, private endpoints make its way into more features in Azure. That's one of the, you know, again, it's a, a fantastic defense that we have uh, within Azure for network isolation. But obviously, it's only one part of, uh, you know, the sort of security posture that an organization can have. Um, there's other things like cryptography and, you know, RBAC controls and uh, authentication and authorization. There's so much more than just network isolation. But it's fantastic to see private link, private endpoint becoming uh, more pervasive uh, within the platform. So that's all I have. So I've got a few things to share this week. Um, first, I wanted to um, kind of add a little bit to what Sarah was saying about Azure Defender for IoT, which I think is one of the, the coolest technologies and one of the biggest changes we've seen in Microsoft's uh, cybersecurity capabilities in a while. For those that weren't aware or didn't notice, we uh, purchased a company called CyberX that has um, OT or ICS or SCADA capabilities. So essentially protecting those old devices that, you know, could be, you know, 10, 20, 30 years old on sort of the IT side, but honestly, between 50 and 100 years old on uh, some of the steam and mechanical controls that 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 those digital things connect to on the physical side. Um, so, you know, Microsoft is very committed to and have, has sort of expanded into that everything IoT, OT, and IT um, kind of space. And so that Azure Defender for IoT, even though it says IoT in the name, um, actually does include the modern IoT devices as well as those OT devices. So um, I've been uh, fortunate enough to be uh, working with a bunch of the folks from 
the CyberX, formerly CyberX team, and they just have a phenomenal amount of deep experience and uh, great technologies there. So very cool. Another thing that kind of takes people surprise uh, by surprise there is even though it's called Azure Defender for IoT, it actually is going to have two different deployment options. One is what you know CyberX folks have been offering before, which is a purely on-prem, no connection to the cloud, no connection to anything else type of solution so that you can have um, this within your isolated environment safely without having to connect them to the world. Um, but it also will um, allow you to connect to the cloud and have sort of the cloud processing and analysis and whatnot um, and connection Azure Sentinel and all the cloud goodness as well. So it's very much a, a choice on, on how that's uh, set up. So very cool stuff there. And on a side note, I'm actually I'm actually trying to figure out how do we tell this story in a coherent way because Microsoft now is doing insider threat stuff. We're doing people education through our new attack simulator capabilities. We're doing OT. We're doing all the traditional IoT endpoint stuff. So, you know, how do we you know create a nice, concise, simple diagram that illustrates this without being super dense? So that's that's one of the things that's very much top of mind for me right now. One of the things that um, the other item that I had is pretty much only going to be talking about this for the rest of my news is really about this digital defense report that we just released. So for folks that are familiar with uh, Microsoft SIR or security intelligence report, this is very much like a reboot reimagine of that, that shares all the things that we're learning about cybersecurity threats and attackers and actors and methodologies and, and all that kind of stuff, um, business models, you name it. Um, and so this is this new digital defense report. I just uh, finished reading through it and there are some really, really interesting and compelling things in there. A lot of just, uh, you know, kind of, you know, something, some things that are sort of new and interesting and I never would have thought of that. And some things that are like, oh, that's a really clear, simple way of looking at what was a complex problem. So highly recommended to check that out. We'll provide the link in the show notes, of course. Um, you know, starting with the IOTOT uh, from the formerly CyberX team, um, you know, a couple interesting stats. Um, for those folks that have OT environments and that we're aware of that are securing it, 71% of those have unsupported systems that don't have patches available for them. 64% have unencrypted passwords going over the network, essentially in plain text, because again, old protocols, old devices. And 54% of those environments provide access to the OT environments from the IT environments using common protocols like RDP, SSH, and VNC. Um, so as you can imagine, there's definitely a lot of security risk in there to be addressed uh, for organizations that do have that SCADA, ICS, PCN kind of operational technology. Um, some other uh, things in there that in the report that I thought were really interesting on uh, nation states, um, you know, sort of the trends on those and kind of different, uh, you know, what different groups are doing at this particular point in time where they're focusing on which techniques, kind of how that's trending. Um, and one of the one of the notes that they had in there was that, you know, no surprise with all the COVID remote work, um, we are seeing the nation states uh, definitely trending upward in their targeting of VPNs and really focusing on that area. Um, in the COVID space, we definitely saw the phishing lures track with sort of popular uh, popular opinion. I don't think it's popular opinion, but it's just the discussion that's going on. And so, you know, as COVID was the thing to talk about in sort of March and early April, so too did the phishing lures go up there and then they declined roughly uh, around the time that people stopped caring about them. Um, so obviously some good analytics on the attacker side on, on, on their phishing campaigns. 
there's a, a number of uh, diagrams in there that really uh, provide some great clarity. That would be great for sort of briefing, you know, business leaders and other stakeholders that security works with around sort of like this is the business model and the stages of an attack from a criminal point of view. Um, you know, some of these things are actually accelerated by just having a kit do it. But, you know, a nice little breakdown of how, you know, those campaigns are built. And then, um, you know, the ransomware attacks, which are uh, they're about 70, 80 percent of what our incident response team or DART team investigates, um, you know, kind of a, a process flow diagram on how those different um, ransomware attacks actually flow in the different stages of it, the different you know ways to go in there. And uh, there's also a nice uh, blast radius diagram, you know, from a business point of view, um, kind of a business impact point of view of, uh, of a potentially compromised account or user, which was uh, really neat. And then some of the criminal trends, you know, business email compromise is generally getting a lot more sophisticated. Um, brand imitation, you know, getting better and better so that it looks more and more like legitimate coming from a brand that you know and trust. And uh, so business email compromise tends to be, you know, focused on the, uh, you know, you know, social engineering aspects kind of thing. They're also seeing sophistication in sort of just criminal activity in general where um, organizations that are being targeted, you know, sometimes for ransomware, sometimes for other things, but very often ransomware nowadays, is they know, okay, these are when this organization, this industry tends to have freezes, you know, during the holidays, et cetera, for different industries. And there's likely to be unpatched systems because they are not allowed to touch those systems during that period. And so they go after those with um, appropriate um, exploits. So we're seeing uh, that on an uptick. RDP brute force is a huge um, ransomware risk um, as far as like the first stage of it to get them in there. We are seeing a lot of operator driven uh, ransomware, not super dominant, but definitely a lot of automation and efficiency in there. Um, in addition to the sort of human actor uh, pieces in the ransomware, um, but the RDP brute force is actually 70% of the, of the, of the way in. There are other ones as well, but that's a, that's a big one. So definitely get your MFA set up um, on especially those exposed systems. Um, and for all the accounts that should be using it, of course, you know, and understand your attack surface, whether it's through Azure Security Center uh, or Shodan or, or what have you. And um, we will put a link into our, our rapid attack roadmap that um, helps uh, uh, provides guidance on how to mitigate against ransomware. Um, the last time we updated, it's been a little longer than I like, um, was actually around the time that NotPetya and WannaCrypt were the, um, the conversations of the day. Um, and so we sort of let that turn into rapid attack guidance, but it is very much also, you know, legit ransomware guidance as opposed to, you know, pretending to be ransomware destroying stuff. Um, so that's out there. Last thing I want to mention really quickly is um, that there's a great section in there from our CISO, uh, Brett Arsenault, about like what's changing in his world um, around remote work and how we're adopting zero trust to sort of, you know, really get into this sort of permanent state of remote work, which is really, you know, whether we like it or not, you know, remote work is kind of the way things are going. Um, and it will be a permanent part of how we do things going forward. It's not a temporary thing. We're no longer camping in a tent. Um, it's time to remember, uh, really plan around. And this is the long-term thing and kind of how they're thinking and approaching it. You know, some insights around vendor partner access and set of risk, supply chain, et cetera. So um, great, great report. Highly, highly recommend checking it out. Um, I was, uh, you know, I track a lot of these kind of topics uh, and I was impressed with the, uh, the kind of insights that they were able to pull together from, uh, from the teams across Microsoft. Well, thanks everyone for the news. Um, now I'd like to pass it on to Sarah and Ava. So Ava Black is an open source program manager in the confidential computing uh, team at Microsoft. 
So Ava, um, why don't you give us a, a brief overview of what you do, how long you've been at Microsoft, and uh, the kind of stuff you do uh, within the group. Sure. Thanks, Michael, and thanks, Sarah, uh, for having me on the show. Um, what I do at Microsoft right now, I've been here about a year. Um, I'm the open source PM, so that means for the confidential compute team in Azure, I help uh, organize all of our work with open source projects, whether we're consuming them or we're writing them. And we do have uh, the, op the open enclave SDK that we publish. Um, I also work with our, our relationship to the Confidential Computing Consortium. It's a Linux Foundation project dedicated to sort of surfacing up hardware enclaves um, through, you know, an ecosystem of open source and closed source vendors and partners that all work together to do that with us. Um, and then you know, starting to pop up in other, other foundations as well. We're seeing projects uh, reach out to, you know, the container and cloud native space and, and other, other areas with similar, similar efforts. Cool. And I mean, Ava, you and I uh, met um, in actually in person when travel was still a thing very earlier in the year um, at Peaceside San Francisco. Um, and we were both on a panel at KubeCon Europe, which, of course, ended up virtual, as, yeah. as many things are at the moment. Um, but of course, uh, the panel we were on was um, talking about confidential compute and how that worked in the open source and Kubernetes environment. But just for those of us, those of the people who are listening who might not be too familiar with what confidential compute is, could you give us maybe a little bit of a run through uh, just high level about what, what that is? Because it gets thrown around a lot now, but I still think that not everybody understands what it is. For a long time, right, we've been able to encrypt data at rest, you know, encrypt your hard drive, encrypt a file when you send it to somebody. Um, and then as, with SSL TLS, we encrypt data in transit. That's become pretty much standard that everything's encrypted all the time, even, even often behind a corporate firewall, you know, SSL everywhere. We even encrypt connections between containers in the same uh, cloud deployment. But we don't encrypt our applications or our data while they're in use. And that is what confidential computing is, right? It is this new effort to keep data and applications encrypted even while they're in use. That would protect against things like a compromised hypervisor or a compromised admin, uh, some maybe some, some firmware that has a malware hidden in it on infrastructure. Part of the goal of this is to, just like customers can bring your own key to encrypt your data at rest, we're working towards being able to have folks bring their own key and encrypt their applications while in use. R remove more and more third parties from what's called the trusted computing base or who has access, who has a connection into what's running inside a, a protected or trusted execution environment. Now, that brings me on to another question around, because um, when we talk open source, of course, everyone knows open source is, is code and things that we share, um, that are shared freely amongst the community and everybody works on it and contributes to it. So to me, there's a little bit of a juxtaposition there between confidential compute and open source, because, of course, open source is something that we share a lot. Confidential compute is when it's running, as you said, when it, when it's actually running and executed, we want to keep it, uh, we want to keep it protected. I'm trying to think what my question is here around this. It's just something I thought of now. And so you can, we can cut this out if you want. <laughs> I think it's a great um, formulation, if not a question yet, but it is a, it is an observation and I'm happy to riff off that because um, at the the idea that confidential computing only encrypts it, that's not the whole picture. 
It also allows for signing and, and at what's called attestation. And that is to say, let's say I'm a, I'm a, I'm a customer, I'm a user of a cloud like Azure, and I've you know, taken some open source projects and I've combined them together with some of my code and I've built a, a container image from that. And maybe in my build system, from there, I upload it to the cloud where the cloud runs it for me. How do I know what, what the cloud is running in production is actually the code that I uploaded. One way is called attestation, right? I sign the container image from my build system that I have secured. It's signed, it's checksummed, it might even be encrypted so nobody else can read it. And then we can upload that somewhere and that service provider could then provide another mechanism to verify the integrity of that image at runtime. And today we can do that with, you know, an an encrypted image that's stored on disk, but we don't have a mechanism, didn't before confidential computing to um, do the, the attestation and verification while it's running. With confidential compute, it, it obviously, it, it sounds like it is somewhat more process intensive. Mm-hmm. Um, so is it, especially if we look at the open source environment and cloud native, is confidential compute much more suited to the cloud environment? Um, was it possible to do this stuff on premise or is this one of the reasons this is becoming more prevalent now because we have so much more flexibility in, in scaling up the, com- the compute power to, to deal with this? I'd say it's a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B. There is some processing overhead to running an application in uh, a trusted execution environment like SGX or AMD Sev, but it's depending on the application, it can be pretty low, a couple percent, ten percent. Uh, some applications, it's much higher. And some of the motivation, I think, to move in this direction is just the types of threats we've seen emerge in the past several years across the industry. Actually, if I can add something there, Ava, I agree 100%. I mean, there is some performance hit, but you got to realize we're, we're doing tasks here that historically have been basically kind of impossible to do. Uh, the fact that we're working on sensitive data and it's encrypted while it's in use and we're working over that data... I, I, a lot of customers that I work with have historically never been able to even do these these tasks. So yes, now we're allowing customers to do these tasks under the, the banner of confidential computing, and they're happy to live with some of the performance hits. Uh, again, it's not, for the most part, huge, but the fact that you can do it, I mean, you couldn't do this yesterday, and now you can. And you know, over time, it'll probably get faster and faster, but I think from, from my perspective, a lot of customers are not that concerned about a one, two, five, 10% performance hit. They're now doing tasks that historically they've just never been able to do. Exactly. And it opens up whole new avenues for folks that, due to regulation, could not move data off of their um, on-prem private infrastructure. Now they're beginning to be able to use public cloud infrastructure for those same applications. Yeah, that's very cool. And it's something that I really need to learn more about. As you said, there were customers um, that weren't able to move into cloud. I think we can probably make a guess with uh, the sort of customers they would be without having to uh, <laughs> without having to talk about them too much. But I guess I'm going to segue a little bit here um, because, of course, we um, had a panel at KubeCon and uh, we will link to in the show notes below if you want to watch it. Um, but we were talking, you and I um, and some other very esteemed people in the industry about uh, how um, high performance computing or HPC fits into the cloud native environment. And obviously, this is a huge, 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 big topic. And we did have many, many unfinished conversations.
conversations. It's a shame that our panel only went for 30 minutes because I think we could have talked for hours. But um, do you want to talk a little bit about the high performance computing and how that fits into this open source cloud native environment and what you do? Um, yeah, high performance computing. Uh, I think one of our our topics we, we kept coming back to on that panel was this trade-off or the perception that there needs to be a trade-off between security and performance. The consensus, my takeaway from our panel discussion really was there's a little bit of a trade-off, but it is, it, for one, it's worth it. Um, and more so if you're moving away from, you know, again, traditional privatized infrastructure to a public cloud infrastructure, which is where we see a lot of HPC workloads, machine learning, uh, large data lakes, things like that, all moving to public infrastructure. Security has to become both something you you do operationally and organizationally in a way that uh, traditional HPC didn't have to consider as much. That's that's nowhere more true than a cloud native ecosystem where you you'd end up sharing infrastructure often across tenants. Yeah, that makes sense. And and I think one of the takeaways from from one of my big takeaways from the panel was, of course, we're trying to secure things. Um, uh, HPC, of course, was traditionally on-prem, and now we've moved it into the cloud, which means uh, we get a lot more power. But And if we run it on top of, uh, say, a Kubernetes cluster, that's great. But we still haven't got... Um, Kubernetes cluster and cloud security nailed. I mean, security is an ongoing thing for everybody, right? So just adding another layer of complexity can be super. Well, that's why security people have jobs, right? <laughs> because we've got to work out how to keep securing things. And then, of course, businesses and technology and needs move on. So we, we keep adding more complexity. Um, so it's tricky, but very exciting. Yeah, and I... I really believe that confidential computing and hardware enclaves, it's additive. It brings a new capability to the security experts in the cloud native space. It, it doesn't replace the need for, you know, good pod security policies and all the other layers in Kubernetes security, but it adds another type of protection that we didn't have before. And that's a good, I don't want to use the word segue again, but I will because that's the word that comes to mind. Because we've talked about, of course, conf what confidential compute can protect against. Obviously, it's adding an additional layer uh, of protection. But what are the things, because I think what we tend to do in the security industry is uh, when a new technology comes out, a lot of people will be like, oh, this is going to fix all the other problems we had before, when, of course, you know, nothing is 100% secure ever. Um, so what are the things that confidential compute still doesn't protect against? What, what are the things that um, someone who's new to this would still need to consider? So you had mentioned earlier open source ecosystems, and that's a great topic for what it doesn't protect against. Um, something that we call software supply chain management. If you are building say a Docker container or a VM that's that has many open source projects, Linux kernel, et cetera, in it, and then you try to run that in your enclave. Well, if there's a vulnerability in one of those dependencies, it's still present in the enclave. If you expose that, say, as a web service, a public API, and there's a vulnerability in that, that still exists. The, the enclave won't protect against what you're opening up to the world. It would protect against other types of attacks, but not that one. Good old supply chain issue and inbuilt vulnerabilities. It's always, well, it never goes away, right? Let's see, another, another one that they don't protect against 
they might make it harder, but they don't protect entirely against it is like cold boot, you know, someone with physical access to the machine and liquid nitrogen or something like that, like very advanced physical attacks. It might make it harder, but it's not designed to necessarily stop that. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I, should, I should jump in real quick and say, I can't speak for all the chip vendors there, just at the at the consortium level, that's sort of the, the widely agreed upon. It's not really the goal of, of the consortium open source projects to model that threat. But talk to your chip vendors, maybe they're doing something different there. And, and that's an interesting point. You say chip vendors. I mean, this is a very much a layered approach, right? I mean, at the very bottom, we have the chips that have a a specific set of instructions that support this technology. And then within Azure, we have specific VMs. So if we take SGX as an example, which is from Intel, we have VMs that uh, run CPUs that have that instruction set. And then on top of that, we have Azure services that will allow customers to take advantage of all this functionality that's below them. So what kind of services do we have today and possibly even in the short term tomorrow that take advantage of this technology? Great question, Michael. And beautifully said, it's a layered approach, right? We were the first cloud to launch a virtual machine that exposes an SGX device. So folks, customers that want to build an application that takes advantage of SGX technology and and enclaves, they can do so through the DC series VMs. We've also launched um, now a confidential compute nodes on AKS in public preview that was just announced at night. So if you're using AKS, you could do the same thing. You can get access to an SGX device in your container. We're working with ISVs uh, to enable a more rich pass layer there. And then a couple other services have been announced and we're working on, working on more for machine learning. For example, I think we just launched the beta for the confidential uh, inferencing through the Onyx runtime. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and of course, there's uh, there's more services on the horizon, right? Which is uh, which is fantastic. So I, 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 you know, honestly, I see this being being huge moving forward. I, I really do. Yeah, um, Ava, do you think, uh, as you said, Michael, you see it being huge, and I know it's sort of early days for a lot of businesses, but even if you're not one of those organizations that traditionally couldn't go to the cloud without this kind of functionality, do you see that it will become the norm or a lot more businesses will start adopting confidential computing in the future? I do. You know, in the in the consortium, we've got all the major chip vendors interested or active and conversations going around Intel, AMD, ARM. Right? Those three all have some chip-based technology that is similar, that protects applications and data in use. And all the major cloud companies at this point have some product in this space. I do believe that everything's moving in this direction. And, you know, as our North Star, imagine if all workloads in the cloud could be encrypted back to the customer and make that the norm. I think that would be a security professional's dream and definitely management's dream if if we could actually confidently say end to end it is encrypted there's nothing or encrypted protected of course i'm not saying that would mean it would be 100 secure but i think that would give a lot of management confidence 
you mentioned the word protected just there, Sarah, and I think that's an important point. We're not just talking about encryption here. Um, Ava sort of alluded to this earlier. Well, you actually said it explicitly. I'm, you know, when it comes to crypto kind of stuff, I'm very pedantic with my wording. It's not just encryption, right? It's tamper detection. It's authentication of endpoints. It really is a very complete end-to-end um, solution, which I think a lot of businesses find very compelling. And again, you've got multiple levels that you can you can work at this. Uh, you've got you know people who want to build the, perhaps their own apps. Uh, you can do that with the Open Enclave SDK, uh, which is available up on GitHub. Um, or you may want to roll out these container instances um, in AKS that also take advantage of um, of, uh, of confidential computing. We also have, you know, in for VMs or on-premises, we have SQL Server with secure enclaves. Uh, and there's a lot of other things coming out um, you know, down the track. Do you want to talk about some of the other Ignite announcements, uh, Ava, around confidential computing? I think you touched on one just now, right? SQL Server always encrypted. Um, that's coming soon. And I believe we just announced the Microsoft at, uh, Azure attestation service and the Azure Key Vault with managed HSM. So these are two more technologies key to this, not just encrypting your data, but proving that what is running in the cloud is what you expected, right? You sign your application image, um, and then when it's uploaded or, or your application runtime, you can verify that it hasn't been tampered with anywhere in your build chain, by in you know somebody else in the supply chain, or at runtime by some sort of a you know malicious agent that might modify the thing while it's running, and, and you might not notice. Right? You can you can protect against those things through what's called attestation. Yeah, I just want to be just explain something for our listeners here uh, with SQL Server. So today you can run SQL Server 2019 um, either on-premises on a machine that has the SGX instructions. Actually, those are VBS instructions, right? It's virtual virtualization-based security. It's not SGX. And then in a VM, um, as long as the VM runs virtualized, uh, nested virtualization, I should say, um, it can also run and one of the hard parts of SQL Server when you're running with secure enclaves is setting up the attestation service. Um, so now one thing that we have in public preview is the Azure attestation service, which honestly, after playing with it for a little bit, is one heck of a lot easier than doing setting up your own on-premises attestation server, which can actually be quite complex to set up. That's a great summary. Thank you, Michael. Ava, what would you like to leave our listeners with? We always like to sort of wrap up with, um, you know, something from our guests about, you know, what what do you want to leave our listeners with? Um, is it um, go and check out confidential computing or do you want to give any advice to someone, uh, an organization or uh, a team who are thinking of implementing it? What, what would you say to someone um, who's listening to this and wants to know some more and maybe get involved? Sure. Yeah, I'd say there's, there's two different layers to get involved at. One, if you are, you know, building infrastructure or platform services yourself, then please come get involved with the Open Enclave SDK work. That's um, up on GitHub. It's a community-led project. Please, you're welcome to join. Um, and if you're working at the app deployment layer, sort of higher up the stack, there's a bunch of projects in that space. And I'm seeing so much interest in how do we, how do we leverage enclaves to, and, and just launch a pre-existing you know, container image into that enclave. And some of that work is surfaced up in the CCC, in the consortium, and some of it is also beginning to surface up in the CNCF, the Cloud Native Computing Foundation around Kubernetes, kind of a natural fit. Um, and 
sort of the, my, you know, the long-term takeaway, I think, is really just that this is becoming ubiquitous. It's going to show up everywhere, the VM layer, the container layer, the function as a service layer in pass through SQL, in machine learning, running in enclaves. It's going to become the standard over time. So now's a great time to get involved while it's still kind of early. I'd just like to add one thing. And again, you're the expert in this area. I'm just coming at it from someone who sort of kicked the tires uh, on at various levels of the stack. If you're looking at the Open Enclave SDK, and it, you, you may find it a little confusing at first, if you've ever done remote procedure call programming, it's somewhat similar in that you sort of have an in, like a definition language that helps uh, the code know where the other code lives in, inside of the secure enclave. So if you're familiar with RPC, you should be okay uh, playing around with the open enclave SDK. Uh, and for what it's worth, what I did was I just set up a VM inside of Azure using one of the DC VM types. And uh, then I loaded the open enclave SDK. I loaded in um, Visual Studio, uh, Visual C++, I should say, and um, and that's it. Um, you could really start kicking the tires on it if you want to operate at that level. Uh, it's uh, it's worthwhile. Anyway, look, Ava, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us this week. Uh, I know you've been crazy busy. I know I learned a great deal from this, and I, I have no doubt that this is going to be pervasive in the future. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, we trust you found this incredibly useful. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Azure Security Podcast. You can find show notes and other resources at our website, azsecuritypodcast.net. If you have any questions, please find us on Twitter at Azure SecPod. Background music is from ccmixter.com and licensed under the Creative Commons license.